The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I'll be uh, not here next Sunday. I'll be teaching uh, out at Spirit Rock and north of the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, then I'll be back just for a few days and then gone teaching on the East Coast. So I'll be gone for several of the next few Sundays, uh, but we'll be here most of the uh, fall, I think the entire fall. And I uh, just want to appreciate all the different teachers that our community has leading the practice groups on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and Wednesdays. And just reminding people that Common Ground operates in the spirit of generosity and now for over 25 years, 26 years now, we've uh, really built a community based on this beautiful value where we, the leaders and teachers, we try to offer everything that's offered here as a free gift, no strings attached. This program, for example, on Sunday morning, it's here because of what people have done in the past. Innumerable people, really, that made this place, this building, and of course the generations of teachers right, through the centuries that have passed these teachings down. And it lands, and we have this beautiful building and beautiful community and these beautiful, helpful teachings. And our job now is to receive it as a free gift. And it's, I don't consider that an easy thing to do, just to receive and let it touch our hearts. And then at some point, whenever, however that looks for you, you may feel moved to be part of this circle of giving and receiving. And then just see what makes you happy. And that's how, the, in this very ordinary sense, that's how the center operates. Instead of charging fees or having suggested donations, we rely on people being part of that circle of giving and receiving in a way that makes you happy. And our budget is between three hundred and fifty and $400,000 a year to pay support the teacher's livelihood and our office staff, our paid employees, and of course our building. And the big thing is Common Ground is developing a retreat property in western Wisconsin. We've been working on now for three to four years. Should be done early fall. And uh, all this has just come because of people feeling moved to give, to volunteer. So just find your own way. And the barometer is like what feels good. Having thought about it, thought about doing it, having done it, what leaves a good taste in your heart? And it's really for each person to figure out because, of course, everyone's circumstances are different. And so what really brings you alive and leaves a good taste in your heart is for you to figure out. But if you have any practical questions about what works, you can, of course, contact the center, see me afterward, or <clears throat> Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here, is also our bookkeeper, and she works on Tuesdays, so you can always call on Tuesdays to get more infor specific information. Good, and um, for those who have been around for these last few months, when I've been talking, I've been giving talks on this area of our practice. You could say one-third of our spiritual life is about bringing awareness, mindful awareness, clarity, honesty, subtlety, sensitivity, to the area of ethical conduct. And maybe surprisingly, hopefully not too surprisingly, 
This is a big deal in the Buddhist teachings. And in a way, it's foundational. It's really hard, like if we're interested in the so, you know, the deeper meditative experiences that maybe we've read about, where people are having oceanic experiences of peace and seeing lights and having profound insights into the underlying nature of reality. Well, first, we need to bring awareness into our relationships and into our relationship with the communities that we're part of and really sensing the quality of our motivations, the quality of our intentions behind our actions, even behind our thoughts, certainly behind our speech. What is the underlying flavor of those ways of interacting and being in relationship with others. And we have so many ways that those relationships get tainted by delusion, by fixed views, by unseen fixed views, often biases of our mind, and by habits of aversion and habits of greed. And one of the chronic habits is to rationalize our unskillful ways of relating to others and relating to the wider world. We're really good at it. (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm fine. Or that's not my responsibility. So I've been talking about that over the last couple months. And today I'm looking at this fourth precept. So the Buddha talks about sila, the sort of commitment to living with integrity and this resonant value of non-harming in uh, different ways. And one way is in terms of these five trainings, to train in non-harming or not killing, to train in not taking what hasn't been given to us, or you could say non-stealing, to train in not causing harm with our sexual activity, and to train in not causing harm with our words, and to train in not causing harm by intoxicating the mind in ways that make us less sharp less uh, and more careless, like when we're intoxicated. So today I want to talk about the fourth training, undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, harmful speech, and it involves slander, it involves you know, speaking a falsehood, it involves even harsh speak, speech and um, idle speech or gossip. And it really, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, it really has a lot to do with the underlying motivation. So uh, the Dalai Lama, who, I don't know if you caught it, but he has been involved in some uh, problems with his speech. It made the news about a week ago. I think he was being interviewed by a magazine and said, um, I think jokingly, but I'm not entirely sure of the context, but that the next Dalai Lama, if it's going to be a woman, she'll have to be attractive. And so, you know, just coming out of his cultural conditioning and the ignorance of that and saying something that could clearly be harmful, hurtful, and unhelpful for sure. You know, a statement like that feeds into a lot of the patriarchy and habits of causing harm to people who identify as women. And... um, 
So it's just it's just interesting that this is the case with one of our great leaders and the sort of movement of Buddhism coming here to the West. But anyway, the Dalai Lama wrote a wonderful book called um, Ethics for the New Millennium. So it was about 18 years ago he wrote this book. It's a wonderful passage, I think right at the beginning. The best way to ensure that when we approach death, we do so without remorse is to ensure that in the present moment we conduct ourselves responsibly and with compassion for others. Actually, this is in our own interest and not just because it will benefit us in the future. As we have seen, compassion is one of the principal things that make our life meaningful. It is a source of all lasting happiness and joy. Now that's sort of a provocative statement. And he goes on, And it is our foundation, and it is the foundation of a good heart, the heart of one who acts out of the desire to help others. Through kindness, through affection, through honesty, through truth and justice towards all others, we ensure our own benefit. This is not a matter for complicated theorizing. It is a matter of common sense. And there is no denying that consideration of others is worthwhile. There is no denying that our happiness is inextricably bound up with the happiness of others. There is no denying that if society suffers, we ourselves suffer. Nor is there any denying that the more our hearts and minds are afflicted with ill will, the more miserable we become. Right? I think I agree, I agree with that. I think that's probably most of us would acknowledge. Yeah, that seems to be true. And he says... Thus we can reject everything else, religion, ideology, all received wisdom, but we cannot escape the necessity of love and compassion. This, then, is my true religion, my simple simple faith. In this sense, there is no need for temple or church or mosque or synagogue, no need for complicated philosophy, doctrine, or dogma. Our own heart, our own mind is the temple. The doctrine is compassion, love for others, and respect for their rights and dignity, no matter who or what they are. Ultimately, these are all we need, so long as we practice these in our daily lives. And that's the interesting thing. So long as we practice these in our daily lives, and no matter if we are learned or unlearned, whether we believe in Buddha or God or follow some other religion or none at all, as long as we have compassion for others, and conduct ourselves with restraint out of a sense of responsibility, then there is no doubt that we will be happy. And so this is the great thing about these ethical trainings. It's really where we get to see this transformation of the heart. Otherwise, it can remain quite theoretical, like we really have fallen in love with the idea of non-attachment, fallen in love with the idea that it's nature, that self-centeredness is just kind of a old, deep habit that isn't actually true. But then we get into conflict with someone on the highway, let's say, or wherever, at work or at home. But then it seems very real all of a sudden, and the desire to cause harm, you know, to put someone down, to get what we want, 
it seems all of a sudden very easy to justify greed, anger, and delusion when the rubber hits the road, as we say. And why speech is one, or speech, the area of speech, is one of the most important areas. I often sort of joke that, you know, if each of us at birth were handed like an amazing weapon, whatever it is, you know, a cruise missile system, where we could just sort of push a button and, or now, you know, with voice recognition, we could just say, send a missile to, and it would happen. But we would operate in a really careful way, or if we had a really sensitive rifle, you know, we'd be careful how we move through the world. We just might accidentally do something stupid. We'd be really careful. But speech is sort of like that. And we know that. I mean, if we took the time to hear all the stories in this room of 100 people or so, all the little and big ways that we've spoken some words or somebody has spoken some words to us, that even a week later our heart or their heart really hurts or a month later, a year later, a decade later. Probably some of you have examples in your lives where something you said to your sibling, let's say 50, 60 years ago, still right now hurts in our heart. Or something they said to us, a parent said to us, a sibling, a friend said, or an enemy said to us, but even a long time ago. I mean, so we know that words, speech, causes harm. And it just seems so obvious these days because the political environment and just the general tone in our wider community is very abrasive, very much putting down. I mean, in sort of respected places, you know, popular TV shows, humor involves really terrible shaming, body shaming and really hateful words, sarcasm that's really meant to hurt. All from all political or you know, so, you know, societal points of view. So it doesn't like one side is doing it, the other side is completely innocent. No, I think it's everywhere. And I, and I feel like uh, I'm a little bit humiliated um, at times by my willingness to listen. When I take a step back, when I'm a little bit more morally sensitive, like, like uh, in the past weeks I talked about cultivating this moral sensitivity in our heart. It's not a fixed idea. It's just like noticing what does it feel like to be listening to this humor where somebody's putting somebody down. What does that feel like? Well, it doesn't feel good. And we always feel okay putting somebody down when we've objectified them as other, right? Like they somehow deserve it. But the more, it's like a famous quote, I forget who said it originally, but you know, if we knew the secret histories of our enemy, like how they were raised, <laughs> it would be a lot harder to see them as other. It would be more easy to see them as another suffering human being. Another suffering human being. They may need to be stopped, their actions, their behavior in the world may need to be confronted. But it doesn't have to be confronted by hatred. 
it can be confronted by love and compassion. Compassion is completely, you know, powerful. It knows how to be fierce, to speak the truth, to do what needs to be done. It doesn't have to include demeaning or hating another to take care of the business of, you know, taking care of each other. We just fall into the habit of hatred because it's sort of somewhat at least wired into our conditioning. And certainly it's part of our cultural habits to demean others. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think it might be genetic, just about who we recognize, how we see our clan. And I don't think it's just, you know, it isn't as simple as the color of our skin or our cultural habits. It's, you know, it's the interesting thing that Um, scientists and uh, academics have, historians have looked at, like what was that turning point where humans went from operating in sort of tight groups, small, relatively small groups, often blood-related groups, right, to where you could have civilization basically, but acting harmoniously together to some degree. And it was really around shared ideas. But part of our ideas, you know, like nationalism, is an idea. Racism is an idea. You know, very powerful ideas of race, of nationalism, of whatever other organizing principles that groups of people have used. And it's, we use that to make other, uh, to kind of create the sense of another who's on the outside. And then we can justify genocide and oppression and all kinds of injustices when we create other. And we see that because we do that all the time, even with our loved ones. Like they're in, and then they do something, and then they're out. They're an other. And they deserve punishment, shaming or whatever. And it's just sort of interesting, like, what is it like when we don't make others others? It changes things. And I'm reminded of that story I've told many, many times that I heard Robert Thurman mention. He's a Buddhist scholar. And, and he said, and he has, I'm not sure he's still teaching at Columbia, so in New York City, and he mentions like if we're in a subway in New York City where it's really crowded and everybody from every corner of the world and people we may not necessarily feel comfortable associating with, they're all there. The whole world is there in the subway car but we only have a seven-minute ride, we know how to tolerate, to kind of close down, have that urban stare, which basically says, you know, don't blank with me, right? And we get through. But then he says, now imagine you're in that, you're in that subway car for eternity. <laughs> we'd, have a, we'd come up with a different way of being in that experience, right? Because making people other wouldn't work for ourselves or for them. It just doesn't work. And this is sort of, you know, when we start to consider wise speech, we need to look at how our speech comes out of this motivation of selfing, self-centeredness, self-centered neediness, self-centered self-righteousness, you know, different flavors of self and other. And remember, sometimes self includes more than oneself. 
you know, my tribe, my group. And our speech really comes out of that. And so the Buddha mentions these four categories, and I'll just mention these. So refraining from telling falsehoods, and this is what the Buddha says. Herein, someone avoids false speech and abstains from it. One speaks the truth, is devoted to truth, reliable, worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of people. Being at a meeting or amongst people or in the midst of his or her relatives or in a society at an office or at a government building, they say king's court, and called upon and asked as a witness to tell what they know, they answer. If they know nothing, I know nothing. And if they know, they answer, I know. And if they've seen nothing, they answer, I've seen nothing. And if they've seen, they answer, I have seen. Thus, they never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of their own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. Right? So the commitment is to the truth. And you can, I'm sure, you know, recognize all the little and big places we feel justified in telling you know, mistruths. But it's a slippery slope. And it, it's easy to rationalize, like it's not convenient to tell the truth. I don't have time to explain the truth. Or it will be uncomfortable for me to say the truth or be uncomfortable for the other person. And there's definitely ways that we speak the truth as a, way, as a kind of weapon. Like I'm actually, my motivation, motivation is I want to harm you and I'll use this truth to hurt you. So our intention isn't to speak the truth. Our intention is to put someone down. I see this in my mind a lot, especially in my, you know, my relationship with my spouse, how the truth is really, be, you know, the motivation behind it is really to kind of that sort of one-upmanship. Oh, you did something wrong. This is the truth, right? I mean, it's subtle. I'm not a total jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Just a mild jerk (laughs) in moments. But it's really good to see it. I'm happy to see it. It's humiliating to see it, of course, but it's really good to see that. And in our relationship, in my relationship with my spouse, we can call and even joke about that habit because this is the thing what I was mentioning before about inside and outside these kind of group dynamics and basically feeling safe which is why we cling to our group what we imagine to be our group self-centeredness erroneously but yet there it is self-centeredness is about feeling safe so Feeling safe is important, but we have to see that self-centeredness, whether it's being alone and self-absorbed or our group, kind of identified with a group, that it doesn't actually make us feel safe. It has to be seen as an ineffective way. And that's really the reason I read that passage from the Dalai Lama's book, because he's pointing to a kind of safety and well-being that comes from an altruistic motivation it actually ultimately feels better to have an altruistic, open-hearted view or motivation 
than any kind of self-centered or group identity motivation. Any limits to our, like we chanted at the beginning, that sort of living for the benefit of all, aspiring to live a life that contributes to my own well-being and the well-being of others, anything short of that, when we look, and it's subtle, will be experienced as constricted. Oh, I don't want to I don't want to live with this kind of heart or this kind of mind, right? And when we actually feel that generosity, we feel good. Not the pretend generosity, that doesn't feel good. But when we actually feel like I'm here for the well-being of all, it doesn't mean I know what that even looks like, right? It just means that the motivation, I'm not here in a stingy way. I'm here to do what's just, what's fair, what's good, what considers every, in a way that considers everybody's well-being. And so this is a relatively uh, useful training because it's somewhat specific. So whenever we're in the vicinity of justifying a misstatement, not saying the whole truth or saying a falsehood, then a big, big time alarm can go off in our heart. You know, pay attention. Does, what does it feel like? What's the motivation here behind this sort of tendency or this disposition to speak something that's not the truth? Holding back some piece of the information or adding something that's not true. Right, so it's really meant like this capacity to refrain, right? It's a superpower. It really, there's no way to be a happy human being because we all, all of us, we have a lot of conditioning, a lot of dispositions that aren't trustworthy, aren't helpful. And so we have to be able to put on the brakes. It's like a car without brakes. Nobody would want to buy a car without brakes. doesn't matter. It could be like one of those amazing Teslas that have pickup and all the features. But without brakes, it's useless. So in terms of our speech, we want that capacity to go, you know what, I'm not going to say this. really want to say it. I'd get a good laugh, but I'm not going to say it. Because it isn't the truth, or it's putting somebody down. That's the second part of why speech, this training, is um, refraining from slander, using words as weapons. With the point, with the purpose of putting somebody down. For this one, the Buddha says, one avoids slanderous speech and abstains from it. What one has heard here, one does not repeat there, so as to cause dissension there. And what one has heard there, one does not repeat here, so as to cause dissension here. Thus one unites those that are divided, and those that are united one encourages. Concord gladdens one. One delights and rejoices in concord. And it, it is, and it is concord, concord that one spreads by one's words. And in the, it's interesting, in the monastic tradition, the, and it can seem a little maybe over the top even, but this harmony in the community in the monastic community, but just generally, is like one of the highest values. And to somehow 
undermine the harmony of the group is considered a real serious offense. But that, you know, that has to be understood like in the context of a healthy monastic setting, like if we're going to adopt that for our wider world, because it can sound like, oh, I can't speak truth to power because it's going to upset those people in power. Right? But we're, if we have a system where we're listening to each other regularly and regularly acknowledging the mistakes that we're making right, and operating from this framework of everybody's well-being matters, then it's really about maintaining the harmony. But when the, when the system, the community is really out of balance... And the Buddha says directly that, like, you can speak what's true and what's ultimately beneficial, but not pleasing. Like, it's really going to upset people. You can do that. You just need to really consider the right time, the right way, the right place, so that what you say is actually beneficial. Right? So that was the criteria. I mean, there's basically only time the Buddha recommends you talk, right, when it's true when it's helpful, and if it's pleasing or not pleasing, you can say it both ways, but you should always consider the right time, the right place, what words would be helpful, because the point with truth is that it's beneficial. Sometimes you can speak the truth, but it's not beneficial. It's not going to help you or anybody. So why are you speaking it? Right? Because if you can if the mind can't conceive of how this speaking of the truth will set good in motion well maybe hold back and that's again just another pointing why it's so important to be able to refrain ourselves i've seen this too like i notice like just in casual conversations if i have something to say like somebody says something and reminds me it's like i feel compelled to say it but just because I want to say it, just because there's this habit energy, like, oh, you should tell them that story, doesn't mean it's a helpful thing to say, even if it's true. It's always a question of like, I think it was Sylvia Burstein I first heard it from, I'm sure other people have said it though, is what we're about to say an improvement on silence? You know, <laughs> Is what we're about to say an improvement on not saying anything? And if we don't have that powerful capacity to refrain from doing something, like saying something, then we won't have any option but to say whatever impulse comes to mind. So refraining from falsehoods, refraining from slander. Related to that is the Buddha recommends refraining from harsh speech. He writes, or he says rather, one should avoid, one avoids harsh language and abstains from it. One speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, such words as go to the heart and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. So what comes to mind are uh, sarcasm, you know, scolding, blaming kind of speech. And again, like how can we speak in ways that are really effective? And and remember, it's okay to disrupt the status quo with our speech because sometimes that's really useful in relationships. We say things 
and it really hurts our partner. Or in terms of activism, we say things and it really disrupts, it really causes discomfort, right? Because people are seeing what they don't want to see or hearing what they don't want to hear. But that may be necessary medicine for the wider well-being of our society. But it's the question should always be not like, is it true, but is it true? And is it the best way to bring about positive change for the well-being of others, for the well-being of all? That's really the question. And the thing is, it can make sense, and we, we get sucked into this polarization of good and evil. Because that's how we, you know, that's the easiest way for, given our genetic wiring and our cultural conditioning, the easiest way for us to bring about change in our intimate relationships, in our relationship with our pets, and in our relationships with the wider world, is to demonize the other and then to defeat them. And it's, it's just interesting to hear that. And then it's like even in politics, you know, then when people come forward and they're talking about change uh, from the place of the heart and really recognizing the good in other and wanting to listen, it can seem, you know, initially like, oh, they're just fools because the other side is bad, evil, you know. And so that's a, just an interesting, it's, uh, to me it, it's related to uh, an attitude I see in my mind sometimes of, oh, let's just burn the whole thing down and start over, right? And it's sort of that same kind of attitude that things are so messed up that we need to burn it down. Or the other side, whatever the other side is, again, it could be our partner, could be the political other, but that the other side is so wrong that we should move forward without really taking the time to consider that they're human beings and given their conditioning, just like our conditioning, they're doing what seems best, right? It's like, it's interesting how wrong that can seem. Like even when we run into a rattlesnake or a deer tick with Lyme's disease or a mosquito, right? to really sense that that creature is doing the best they can, given their conditions. We still have to take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean we you know, get the deer tick on, please take as much as you like. <laughs> and then when you're done, I'll find a nice place where you can find, where your babies can find other hosts and live on and on. We don't say that, right? We keep our distance. But we don't need to act out of fear and hate with our language. Right? And that's just sort of interesting in this, especially at these times, to really watch how we talk about others, especially others who aren't there. And like where are those people we feel justified and like uh, contempt is such an interest. My wife and I have been playing with the just like the look and the voice of contempt. And where, where we just feel like, you know, like that sort of, that's sort of like, that's that tribal mentality because like when we both have contempt or we have contempt for each other, you know, it's just sort of an interesting, natural, but very toxic 
tendency of our heart, how we justify contempt and the words that flow out of contempt. And to really study it as you're watching the news, as you're listening to your friends. And so you get right, oh, this is contempt. This is that powerful force of separation, otherizing others, right? And then we can do basically whatever we want once we've otherized somebody, right? We can really, we don't care. And they probably would be better if we could just exterminate them. You know, we'd all be better off. And, you know, that's what we do with cancer, so maybe that's what we do with others. And this is what's been going on probably since the beginning of time when humans ran into others, right? We got rid of them if we could. If we had enough power, we'd get rid of them. And then the last thing, the last uh, um, way of right speech or wise speech is avoiding or refraining from idle speech. And this is like such an interesting thing. Gossip would, of course, fall into this category. But even saying things that don't need to be said. And the Buddha, you know, in the tradition, it's very specific. And these trainings are very specific because they're meant to be like alarm clocks, beautiful alarm clocks going off. And so like when we're talking about, this is from, you know, 2,600 years ago, Kings, robbers, ministers, armies, battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, and countryside, attractive people, heroes, gossips of the street and well, right, hanging around the local well, (laughs) tales of the dead, philosophical debates. Those are what we shouldn't talk about. Basically, everything we do talk about And what we should talk about is wanting little, contentment, seclusion, non-entanglement, persistence, integrity or virtue, concentration, discernment, and release. And so it's, you know, in terms of our, I mean, for as lay people, there's definitely naturally going to be space for um, idle speech in the sense of greetings and just, how's the weather, you're looking good, or, you know, whatever it might be. But, but the motivation behind that kind of light speech should be, it's nice to see you, may you be well. And we can start actually being a little bit more accurate. We don't really care about, you know, what the person's doing. What we really want to say is, you're another human being, I sense you know, that... that sense of wanting safety that I have for myself, I know you want to be safe too. May you be well. Because that's really, you know, often those connections are really on that primal level like, hey, it's not easy being a human being. Good luck. You know, may you be well. May the conditions be easeful for you. Right? May wisdom and love protect you. That's really what we want to say, but it's not socially appropriate to say something kind of direct like that. So we say, you know, how things been going? You know, how about those twins? (laughs) Boy, it's humid today. Hey, did you see that last episode of... But it's really about this flow of kindness, of love. It's like, hey, it's nice hanging out with you in this busy, complicated world. 
it's nice just having this shared sense of humanity here for a few moments before we go on our way. But maybe it would be better, even with that kind of idle speech, to just be a little bit more direct about it. So those are the four ways of practicing right speech, wise speech. Really having an alarm clock around any kind of falsehood that we might speak, including leaving out some bit of the truth when we're talking, using words with the purpose to harm, slander, using harsh speech, loud speech, swearing. Not that all of that is wrong, but really looking at the motivation. What's the motivation here? What's the point? And then idle speech. Is this an improvement on silence? And this is a relatively simple way. So I just encourage you to play with this in the next few weeks. You can also Google. There's lots of good stuff on our website, under our Buddhist Studies website. You can look under kamagrammeditation.org. Look under our main menu item, Resources. You see the Buddhist Studies there. And then when you look at the Buddhist Studies webpage, on the right side of that webpage will be all the past classes. One of them is on Why Speech. So you can look and you'll get lots of good readings and other talks on this subject if you're interested. But it's 11.45. I didn't leave any room for discussion. Sorry about that. We'll just let go of the words for a few seconds. Just take a breath or two together. Appreciate the silence. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.